My mother told me someday I would buy Galley with good oars, sail to distant shores, stand up high in the prow, noble bark I steer, steady course for the haven, humany foemen, humany foemen. My mother told me someday I would buy Galley with good oars, sail to distant shores Stand up high in the prow, noble bark I steer Steady course for the haven, many foemen That took a few goes, that took a few goes. Started learning it like about an hour ago. Um, so, welcome back to part two. Um, that song is actually, um, I think written in the ninth century or something like that. It's a real old Norse song. Um, the guy who wrote it, his name, um, there's a famous saga, um, about him or he wrote it, um, Egil, Egil Skalag, Skalagrimson, Egil Skalagrimson. Yeah, he wrote that song a very long time ago. Um, yeah, and it was in Vikings as well. Um, so I think I'm just going to get straight into it. If you listened to the last one, the last one was really like a big build up. <laughs> it was like a big build up to um, to really getting into the Scandinavian myths. I liked it. It held my interest um, just for the last maybe five minutes of the of the part one. He started to get into it. Um, yeah. And so I'm just going to assume that maybe you listen to the first and so I'm going to take back up where I left off. Uh, let me think. Is there anything I am forgetting to say here? Um, what did I learn? Did I learn anything about Thomas Carlyle in the meantime? Um, no. Just, I suppose, um, the guy J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R. Tolkien. Um, he was massively influenced by this Scandinavian mythology in his... Um, for his Lord of the Rings books. Like, um, Gandalf is actually the name of a dwarf in the in the Scandinavian mythology, for example. Anyway, so this lecture is all about that. So um, let's just go with it and see what, uh, see what this guy has to um, tell us um, as a result of his deep dive um, investigation into um, the Scandinavian mythology. So, we're going to start off where I left off, and it's with thunder. Mm. Thunder was not then mere electricity, vitreous or resinous. It was the god Donner, thunder, or Thor, god also of 
beneficent summer heat. Hmm. The takes a minute to kind of get in the flow of the reading. <laughs> the yeah, the thunder was his wrath. The gathering of the black clouds is the drawing down of Thor's angry brows. The firebolt bursting out of heaven is the all-rendering hammer flung from the hand of Thor. He urges his cloud chariot over the mountaintops. That is the peal, wrathful, he he blows in his red beard. That is the rustling storm blast before the thunder begins. Balder, again, the white god, the beautiful, the just and uh, benignant, benignant, whom the early Christian missionaries found to resemble Christ, is the sun, beautifulest of visible things, wondrous too, and divine still, after all our astronomies and almanacs. But perhaps the most note, perhaps the notablest, uh, most notable, we would say most notable. Just going to double check that this thing is still, yeah, still recording. Um, but perhaps the most, the most noble God we hear tell of is one of whom Grimm, the German etymologist, finds trace. The, the God Wunsch or Wish, the God called Wish, who could give us all that he wished. Is not this the sincerest and yet rudest voice of the spirit of man? Intentions and wishful and, yeah, yeah. Ideas and what you want. The rudest ideal that man ever formed. <laughs> a God called wish. Oh, I think and I, I want it. So, oh, there's a God that's going to help me get my wish. Um, which still shows itself in the latest form of our spiritual culture. Higher considerations have to teach us that the God wish is not the true God. Of the other gods, or Jotuns, the bad, the bad gods, um, I will mention only for etymology's sake that Sea Tempest is the Jotun Aegir, a very dangerous Jotun. And now, to this day, on our River Trent, as I learn, the Nottingham bargemen, when the river is in a certain flooded state, a kind of backwater or eddying swirl, it has very, uh, danger, very dangerous to them, call it eager. They cry out, have a care, there is the eager coming. Hmm. Curious, that word surviving, like the peak of a submerged world. Ah, so, yeah, this Scandinavian word is still spoken in Scotland. Um, the oldest Nottingham bargemen had believed in the god Aegir. Indeed, our English blood, too, in good part, is Danish, Norse, or rather, at bottom, Danish and Norse and Saxon. Or rather, I'll say that again. Indeed, our English blood, too, in good part, is Danish, Norse, or rather, at bottom, Danish and Norse and Saxon have no distinction, except a superficial one, as of heathen and Christian or the like. But all over our island, we are mingled largely with Danes proper. Yeah, England was Anglo-Saxon and... Saxony had the same gods as um, the Scandinavians. They just pronounced them slightly different. Like Odin 
is Odin in Scandinavia and then in like Germany, Saxony. Not sure about Denmark, maybe Denmark as well, not sure. But anyway, in Germany, he was called Wotan. Um, and yeah, I had this in mind to say, so I may as well just say it now. Maybe it's going to come up, but uh, I, I think I got this from a different source. But um, um, I think the, the Scandinavians and the Germans, they didn't have names for the days of the week. They probably just went by the moons. You know, there's one full moon each month. And um, when they did find out from the Romans about the days of the week, um, the days of the week in Latin are named after gods. Like Lundi is like the moon god because, uh, what is it? Um, La Lune. Lune is moon in French. And then uh, Mardi... Um, what the, what the Germanic peoples did was they just found the equivalent in their mythology of the Roman god for each day of the week. Um, like uh, Mercury is like, I think, the god of war. So I think, um, so they chose Woden, which was, you know, like in Scandinavia, it's Odin. But when it came down to Germany and then went over to England, um, it became Waden. And this is where we get... Uh, Wednesday. I was always thinking, like, what the hell is up with, is up with Wedden, Wednesday? What the hell is that? Um, but yeah, a few years ago, probably around the same time I was reading this book, I, I came across an explanation. So yeah, um, when you say Wednesday, you're actually saying Odin's day. Uh, and then obviously, Thursday's Thor's day. Uh, and Tuesday is actually kind of a a, like a morphed version of Tyr, I think. Tyr is another Scandinavian god, I'm pretty sure. Um, and then Mandag, Moondag, Mondays, obviously just, yeah, Moonday as well. Um, all right, so back to it. Um, where was I? As of heathen. But all over our island, we have mingled largely... I'm just thinking, is there anything I should say there about that? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it was Anglo-Saxons who, I said this in other episodes as well, the Anglos were kind of like, I think the Ingles were like roughly around where Holland is, and then the Saxons were, yeah, where Germany is, and they, when the Roman Empire collapsed, they sailed over to England, and they kind of uh, took it over. Um, I'll just go on a rant here, because it's on my head, in my mind now, oh, there's a motorbike. Um, it's like a, it's like a, mos like a really loud mosquito. <laughs> um, I was just thinking like, um, yeah, like the history of England, the Roman empire fell. It was Celtic first. Maybe it was something else even before them. Then it was Romanized and then it was Anglo-Saxon. And then sometime later it was, um, it was the Normans who took over England, but the Normans were once again just Vikings who came down and uh, conquered. They were raiding northern France and then the king of France just said, look, stop raiding us. We'll just give you that land and then just live there and stop, you know, you know, um, stop uh, trying to destroy our our <laughs> our kingdom. So then anyway, eventually they settled there and then they the Normans in Normandy got. Yeah. And it's Normandy because it's Northman. 
from you know the north of Scandinavia, uh, and then the Normans got hungry again, and they went and conquered all of England, um, and then and then um, and then over time, I've said this in other episodes as well, the French. Because the Vikings adopted the French language in Normandy, and then the ruling class of uh, of England spoke French when the Normans conquered it, and then eventually the Anglo-Saxon languages, the Germanic languages, mixed with the with the French over centuries, and then that's what English is. It's a mix of basically, yeah, German and kind of like uh, you know the the language from Holland and French, um, yeah, and then. Um, Yeah, and then these um, these uh, people from England then basically went to America. So, so much migrations are involved. Anyway, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. A little, a little bit of history about uh, the Vikings um, and how they moved around everywhere. And um, yeah, a real melting pot of Vikings in England. Um, they also came to Ireland. They came to Ireland... Um, do I have the date? Well, in Ireland they came in 841, I think, uh, but in England they came sometime in sometime in the century before that. Uh, it was Lindisfarne, this uh, monastic island uh, that they attacked first. Um, I mentioned that in another episode, um, the one about how the Irish saved civilization. Um. Okay, I'm getting really sidetracked here now. I'll get back into it. Um, so, but all over our island, we are mingled largely with Danes proper from the incessant invasions there, the, there were. And this, of course, in a greater proportion along the east coast and greatest of all, as I find, in the north country. Um, from the Humber upwards, all over Scotland, the speech of the common people is still, in a singular degree, Icelandic. Ah. Its Germanism has still a peculiar Norse tinge. They too are Normans, Northmen, if that be any great beauty. Of the chief god Odin, we shall speak by and by. Mark at present so much what the essence of Scandinavian and indeed of all paganism is, a recognition of the forces of nature as godlike, stupendous, personal agencies as gods and demons. So they kind of, uh, they notice the different kind of forces of nature like fire and coldness or like wind uh, maybe even the sea and those forces of nature they 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 thought that it was gods that were like animating those forces yeah it's kind of a in a way it's like a rudimentary scientific observation <laughs> you know and then those scientific primitive scientific observations were developed and scrutinized more closely and closely until you get down to the atom, let's say, um, over the centuries, over the millennia. Well, it was in the, in, in Greece, the Greeks speculated about the atoms, which is, which is, yeah, pretty astounding. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> back to the text. Um, so Odin, um, not inconceivable to us. It is the infant thought, yeah, the infant thought of man opening itself, yeah. 
um, with awe and wonder on this ever stupendous universe. I mean, I was thinking um, I had to listen back to the first episode to make sure, you know, everything was all right. And like before I put it out and when I was thinking about the part where um, I was thinking, like, what would a, let's say, primitive society have or primitive person within a society? What would have everything been like to them? They must have just been probably like um, maybe they were like uh, spooked by everything. Maybe they were in awe of everything. You know, they must have been really, um, I wonder. <laughs> I, yeah, I was dwelling on that when I was uh, listening back to it, as I was when I said it at the time. But uh, yeah, I can't really just dwell on it too long here because there'll be uh, a lot of silence. <laughs> so I'll do that after. Um you can pause it if you like and do it now. <laughs> um, so it is the infant thought of man opening itself with awe and wonder on this e ever stupendous universe. To me, there is in the Norse system something very genuine, very great and manlike. A broad simplicity, simplicity, rusticity, so very different from the light gracefulness of the old Greek paganism distinguishes this Scandinavian system. So very different, uh, yeah. It is thought, the genuine thought of deep, rude, earnest minds fairly opened to the things about, about them. A face-to-face -face and heart-to-heart -heart inspection of the things. The first characteristic of all good thought in all times. Not graceful lightness, half-sport as in the Greek paganism, a certain homely truthfulness and rustic strength, strength, a great rude sincerity discloses itself here. It is strange after our beautiful Apollo statues and clear smiling uh, mythuses. Mythuses, that's a strange, another, again, a strange 19th century kind of, kind of a word. To come down upon the Norse gods brewing ale, to hold their feast with the Aegir, the sea Jotun, sending out Thor to get the cauldron from, to get the cauldron for them in the Jotun country. Thor, after many adventures, clapping the pot on his head like a huge hat and walking off with it, quite lost in it, the ears of the pot reaching down to his heels. A kind of vacant hugeness, large, awkward gianthood characterizes that Norse system. Enormous force, as yet altogether untortured. Enor enormous force. Uh-oh, my throat is getting <clears throat> dry again. Um... As yet altogether untortured. Stalking helpless with large uncertain strides, consider only their primary mythos. I'm just going to say myths because he's saying M-Y-T-H-U-S, mythos, but I'm going to say myths, myths of creation. The gods, having got the giant Ymir slain, a giant made of warm wind and much and much confused work out of the conflict of frost and fire, determined a constructing determined on constructing a world with him uh oh my throat <coughs> 
His blood made the sea. His flesh was the land. The rocks, his bones. Oh no, my throat is really tickly. Damn you. Oh my God. It's noisy here. Um, I'll keep going, see what happens. Um, His blood made the sea. His flesh was the land. The rocks, his bones. Of his eyebrows they formed Asgard, their god's dwelling. His skull was the great blue vault of immensity. The brains of it became the clouds. What a hyper... uh, What's this word? Hyper... Brobdignagian business. That's a weird word. Brobdignagian business. Untamed thought, great, giant-like, enormous, to be tamed in due time into the compact greatness, not giant-like, but godlike, and God, and stronger than gianthood of the Shakespeare's, the Guthas, spiritually as well as bodily, these men are progenitors. I like, too, that representation they have of the tree Yggdrasil, All life is figured by them as a tree. Yggdrasil, the ash tree of existence, has its roots deep down in the kingdoms of Hela or death. Its trunk reaches up heaven high, spreads its bough over the whole universe. It is the tree of existence. At the foot of it, in the death kingdom, sit the tree Nornas, fates, the past, present and future. Watering its roots from the sacred well, its boughs or branches with their buddings and disleafings, events, things stuffed, things done, oh sorry, things suffered, things done, catastrophes. Stretch through all lands and times. Is not every leaf of it a biography, every fiber there an act or word? Its boughs are histories of nations. The rustle of it is the noise of human existence. Onwards from, the, from, from of old, it grows there, the breath of human passion rustling through it, or storm-tossed, the storm-wind howling through it like the voice of all the gods. It is Yggdrasil, the tree of existence. It is the past, the present, and the future. What was done, what is doing, what will be done. The infinite conjugation of the verb to do. Hmm. Considering how human things circulate, each inextricably in communion with all how the word i how the word i speak to you today is borrowed not from ulfela the hmm mozogoth that's a strange one but ulfela that's i mentioned him before ulfela i mentioned him before he's the guy who he um what do you call it he converted the 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 Gothic tribes in um, Eastern Europe before they entered the Roman Empire. Um, but from all men since the first man began to speak, and this is reminding me of what I read in the Emerson essay that um, the way he put it was something like um, 
it's like all language is fossilized thought. I think it was something like that. Every single word was hard earned. Um, I find no similitude so true as this of a tree. Beautiful, altogether beautiful and great. The machine of the universe, in quotation marks. Alas, do but think of that in contrast. Well, it is strange enough, this old Norse view of nature, different enough from what we believe of nature, whence it specially came, one would not like to be compelled to say very minutely. One thing we may say, it came from the thoughts of Norse men. Yeah, interesting conception. Everything is like a, a tree is like their fundamental, um, yeah, as, as you said, kind of metaphor for life. From the thought, above all, of the first Norse man who had an original power of thinking, the first Norse man of genius, as we should call him, innumer innumerable men had passed by across this universe with a dumb, vague wonder, such as the very animals may feel, or with a painful, fruitlessly inquiring wonder, such as men only feel, till, until the great thinker came, the original man, the seer, who had shaped spoken thoughts, whose shaped spoken thoughts awakes, thought awakes, I'll say that again, <laughs> whose shaped spoken thought awakes, the slumbering capability of all into thought. It is ever the way with the thinker, the spiritual hero. What he says, all men were not far from saying, were longing to say. The thoughts of all start up as from painful enchantment, as from painful enchantments, enchanted sleep. Round his thought, answering to it, yes, even so, Joyful to men as the dawning of day from night. It is not indeed the awakening for them from no being into being, from death. That's a question. Uh, is it not indeed the awakening for them from not being into being, from death into life? This is like uh, having the capability to articulate things is the difference he's saying here from like kind of non-being into being, we still, and as I said in another episode as well, this is kind of like what writers will do. They will articulate, yeah, poets as well, they will articulate um, previously unarticulated things, whatever that may be. Um, where was I? Um... <clears throat> what he says, I said that, the thoughts all start up. Um, joyful to men as the dawning of day from night. Oh, yes, there we are. We still honor such a man, call him poet, genius, and so forth. But to these wild men, he was a very magician, a worker of miraculous, unexpected blessing for them, a prophet, a god. Yeah. In those, let's say, primitive times, a person who was really good at doing this would have seen, would have seen like a total, yeah, like a, a seer, a prophet almost, would have been mesmerizing, I guess. Thought once awakened does not again slumber, unfolds itself into a system of thought, grows 
in man after man, generation after generation, till its full stature is reached, and such systems of thought can grow no farther, but must give place to another. For the Norse people, the man now named Odin, the chief Norse god, we fancy was such a man, a teacher and captain of soul and of body, a hero of worth immeasurable, admiration for whom, transcending the known bounds, became adoration. He has not the power of articulate thinking, has he not the power of articulate thinking and many other powers as yet as yet miraculous? So, with boundless gratitude, would the rude Norse heart feel? Has he not solved for them the sphinx enigma of this universe, given assurance to them of their own destiny there? By him they know now what they have to do here, what to look for hereafter. Existence has become articulate, melodious by him. He first has made life alive. We may call this Odin the origin of Norse mythology. Odin, or whatever name the first Norse thinker bore while he was a man among men. His view of the universe once promulgated... A like view starts into being in all minds, grows, keeps ever growing, while it continues credible there. In all minds it lay written, but invisibly, as in sympathetic ink. At his word it starts into visibility in all. Nay, in every epoch of the world, the great event, parents of all other, is it not the arrival of a thinker in the world? One other thing we must not forget. It will explain a little the confusion of these Norse Eddas. Eddas is just kind of like, uh, yeah, it's just their word for poetry, I think. Um, they are not one coherent system of thought, but properly the summation of several su successive systems. All this of the old Norse belief, which is flung out for us in one level of distance in the Edda, like a picture painted on the same canvas, does not at all stand so in the reality. It stands rather at all manner of distances and depths of succession of successive generations since the belief first began. All Scandinavian thinkers, since the first of them, contributed to that Scandinavian system of thought. In ever new elaboration and addition, it is the combined work of them all. What history it had, how it changed from shape to shape by one thinker's contribution after another, till it got to the full final shape we see it in the uh, we see it under in the Edda. So he's saying these these stories probably were kind of uh, improved upon each generation until we get them as they were first recorded in Iceland, as he mentioned in the last uh, episode, um, when Christianity, when the, when the Scandinavian world was Christianized and then the Celtic or the Christian monks started writing down the stories to preserve them. Mm. Where was I? Um, 
what history it had, how it changed from shape to shape by one thinker's contribution after another, till it got to the full shape, full final shape we see it under in the Edda. No man will know, will now ever know its councils of Trebizond, councils of Trent, Athanasius's, Dante's, Luther's are sunk without echo in the dark night. Yeah, he's just kind of imagining like maybe the different kind of revolts or something that happened within um, that culture, uh, within the ideas of that culture, and we have no trace of it. Only that it had such a history we can all know. Wheresoever a thinker appeared, there in the thing he thought of was a contribution, accession, a change or revolution made. Alas, the grandest revolution of all, the one made by the man Odin himself, is not this too sunk is not this too sunk for us like the rest? Of Odin, what history? Strange rather to reflect that he had a history. This that this Odin in his wild Norse vesture, with his wild beard and eyes, his rude Norse speech and ways, was a man like us, with our sorrows, joys, with our limbs, features intrinsically all one as we and did such a work but the work much of it has perished the worker all to the name wed wednesday yeah he mentioned it here men will say tomorrow odin's day of odin there exists no history no document of it no guess about it worth repeating snorro snorro sturluson i think it was Indeed, in the quietest manner, almost in a brief business style, writes down in his um, Heimskringla, probably said that totally wrong, um, it's probably some collection of stories, how Odin was a hero, heroic prince in the Black Sea region with 12 peers, 12 peers, and a great people straightened uh, for room. How he led these Asen. Asiatics out uh, these Asen of his out of Asia hmm. settled them in the north parts of Europe by warlike conquest um, I'm just thinking of some I have a vague recollection of some kind of a map I saw before where um map of the indo-european languages and yeah the the aryan people the, like ancient aryan people um migrated up to the north i think that's what i think he's even aware of that here in this um all a bit vague there um settled them in the north parts of Europe by warlike conquest, invented letters, poetry, and so forth, and came by and by to be worshipped as chief god by the Scandinavians, his twelve peers made into twelve sons of his own, gods like himself. Snorro has no doubt of this. Saxo Grammaticus, a very curious Northman of that, he was a Danish monk, I think, um, Saxo Grammaticus, um, a very curious Northman of that same century is still more unhesitating, scruples not to find out a historical fact in every individual myth and writes it down as a terrestrial event in Denmark yep, or elsewhere. Torpheus learned and learned and cautious 
Some centuries later, as signs by calculation a date for it, Odin, he says, came into Europe about the year 70 before Christ, all of which, as grounded on mere uncer uncertainties, found to be untenable now. I need say no I need say nothing. Far, very far beyond the year 70, he thinks it is, is much older, Odin's date adventures, whole terrestrial history, figure and environment are sunk from us forever into unknown thousands of years. Mm. Nay, Grimm, the German antiquary, goes so far as to deny that any man, Odin, ever existed. Probably just a myth an accumulated myth, an exaggerated story after generation after generation, perhaps. Mm, poet after poet building on the previous poets, perhaps. He proves it to be, he proves it by etymology. The word Wutan, which is the original form of Odin, a word spread as name of their chief a word spread as name of their chief divinity all over all the Teutonic nations. Teutonic, it's like the Germanic peoples. Um, this world, this word which connects itself according to Grimm with the Latin Vader, with the English Wade, and such like means primarily movement, source of movement, power and is the fit name of the highest god not of any man the word signifies divinity he says among the old saxon german and all teutonic nations the adjectives formed from it all signify divine supreme or something pertaining to the chief god like enough <laughs> like enough exclamation mark like enough we must bow to Grimm, 19th century phrase, we must bow to Grimm in matters etymological. Let us consider it fixed that Wutan means wading, force of movement, and now still what hinders it from being the name of a heroic man and mover as well as of a god. As for the adjectives and words formed from it, did not the Spaniards in their universal admiration of Lope get into the habit of saying a lope flower, a lope dama, if the flower or, or woman were of surprising beauty. Had this lasted, lope would have grown in Spain to be an adjective signifying godlike also. Indeed, Adam Smith, in his essay on language, um, surmises that all adjectives whatsoever were formed precisely in that way. Some very green thing, chiefly notable for its greenness, got the appellative name green. Hmm. And then the next thing remarkable for that quality, a tree, for instance, was named the green tree. As we still say, the steam coach, four horse coach, or the like. All primary adjectives, according to Smith, were formed in this way, were at first substantives and things. We cannot annihilate a man for etymologies like that. Surely there was a first teacher and captain. Surely there must have been an Odin. Palpable to the senses palpable to the sense at one time no adjective but a real hero of flesh and blood the voice of all tradition 
history or echo of history agrees with all that thought will teach one about it mm, to assure us of this how the man odin came to be considered a god the, ch the chief god that surely is a question which nobody would wish to to dogmatize upon i have said his people knew no limits to their admiration of him they had as yet no scale to measure admiration by fancy your own generous heart heart's love of some greatest man expanding till it transcended all bounds till it filled and overflowed the whole field of your thought or what if this man odin since a great deep soul with the afflatus and mystery tide of vision impulse and impulse rushing on him he knows not whence is ever an enigma a kind of terror and wonder to himself should have felt that perhaps he was divine that he was some effluence of the wutan or movement supreme power and divinity or whom this or whom to his rapt vision all nature was the awful flame image i'm just uh thinking of hosier's song movement such a unbelievable song <laughs> um really amazing song um i think i said this before in another episode but i'm just here at it again now so i'll say it again um has there ever been a song for you that like when you hear it you feel like you have heard that song like it's a new song on the radio but the first time you hear it you feel like you know it already i've gotten that um i've gotten that actually i think twice with hosier actually um maybe with other artists as well but um with take me to church when i heard that first it felt so like familiar or something uh and then it was again with that other song movement um i had the same kind of a feeling which is strange but um yeah anyway that's a great song check it out movement movement by hosier um uh where was i uh supreme power and dignity of whom to his rapt vision all nature was the awful flame image that some effluence of wutan dwelt here in him he was not necessarily false he was but mistaken speaking the truest he knew a great soul any sincere soul knows not what he is alternates between the highest height and the lowest depth can of all things the least measure himself what others take him for and what he guesses that he may be these two items strangely act on one another on one another help to determine one another with all men reverently admiring him with his own wild soul full of noble ardors and affections of whirlwind chaotic darkness and glorious new light a divine universe bursting all into godlike beauty around him and no man to whom the like ever had befallen what could he think himself to be wutan all men answered wutan what could he think himself to be wutan all men answered wutan and then consider what mere time will do in such cases how if a man was great while living he be he becomes tenfold greater when dead what an enormous 
camera obscura magnifier is tradition. How a thing grows in the human memory, in the human imagination, when love, worship, and all that lies in the human heart is there to encourage it. And in the darkness, in the entire ignorance, without date or document, no book, no Arundel marble, only here and there some dumb monumental cairn. Why in 30 or 40 years were there no books, any great man? Why, why in 30 or 40 years were there no books, any great man would grow mythic? Uh, the contemporaries who had seen him being once all dead. And in 300 years and in 3,000 years, to attempt theorizing on such matters would profit little. They are matters which refuse to be theoremed and diagrammed, which logic ought to know that she cannot speak of. Enough for us to discern, far in the uttermost distance, some gleam as of a small real light shining in the center of that enormous camera obscura image to discern that the center of all was not a madness and nothing but a sanity and something this light kindled in the great dark vortex of the norse mind dark but living waiting only for light this is to me the center of the whole how such light will then shine out and with wondrous thousandfold expansion spread itself in forms and colours depends not on it so much as on the national mind recipient of it. The colours and forms of your light will be those of the cut glass it has to shine through. Curious to think how for every man any the truest fact is modelled by the nature of the man. I said the earnest man speaking to his brother men must always have stated what seemed to him a fact, a real appearance of nature, but the way in which such appearance or fact shaped itself, what sort of fact it became for him was and is modified by his own laws of thinking, deep, subtle, but universal, ever operating laws. The world of nature for every man is the fantasy of himself. This world is the multiplex image of his own dream. Who knows to what unnameable subtleties of spiritual law all these pagan fables owe their shape? The number twelve, divisiblest of all, which could be halved, quartered, parted into three, into six, the most remarkable number. This was enough to determine the signs of the zodiac, the number of Odin's sons, and innumerable other twelves, any vague rumour of number had a tendency to settle itself into twelve. <laughs> so with regard to every other matter, and quite unconsciously too, with no notion of building up allegories, but the fresh clear glance of those first ages would be prompt in discerning the secret relations of things, and wholly open to obey these, Schiller finds in the cestus of venus an everlasting aesthetic truth as to the nature of all beauty curious but he is careful not to ins insinuate that the old greek myth myth myths mythists <laughs> had any notion of lecturing about the philosophy of of criticism on the whole we must leave those boundless regions cannot we conceive that odin was a reality 
error indeed, error enough, but sheer falsehood, idols, fab idle fables, allegory, afterthought. We will not believe that our father believed in these. Odin's runes are a significant feature of him. Runes and the miracle of miracles of magic he worked by them make a great feature in tradition. Runes are the Scandinavian alphabet. Yeah, they're those like kind of lines, diagonal lines um, carved into rocks. Suppose Odin to have been the inventor of letters as well as magic among that people. He's said to have invented the letters and magic for the Scandinavians. It is the greatest invention man has ever made. This of marking down the unseen thought that is in him by written characters. It is a kind of second speech, almost as miraculous as the first. You, you remember the astonishment and incredulity of Atahualpa, the Peruvian king, how he made the Spanish soldier who was guarding him scratch Dios on his thumbnail, <laughs> that he might try the next soldier with it to ascertain whether such a miracle was possible. If Odin brought letters among his people, he might work magic enough. Writing by runes has some air of being original among the Norsemen, not a Phoenician alphabet, but a native Scandinavian one. Snorro, Sturluson, tells us farther that Odin invented poetry, the music of human speech, as well as the miraculous runic ma marking of it. Mm, cool. Mm. Transport yourselves into the early childhood of nations, the first beautiful morning light of our Europe, when all yet lay in fresh young radiance as of a great sunrise, and our Europe was first beginning to think, to be, Wonder, hope, infinite radiance of hope and wonder, as of a young child's thoughts in the hearts of these strong men, strong sons of nature, and here was not only a wild captain and fighter, discerning with his wild flashing eyes what to do with his wild lion heart daring and doing it, but a poet too, all that we mean by a poet, prophet, great devout thinker and inventor, as the truly great man always is. A hero is a hero at all points, in the soul and thought of him, first of all. This Odin, in his, in his rude, semi-articulate way, had a word to speak, a great heart laid open to take in this great universe and man's life here and utter a great word about it. A hero, as I say, in his own rude manner, a wise, gifted, noble-hearted man. And now, if we still admire such a man beyond all others, what must these wild Norse souls, first awakened into thinking, have, have made of him? To them, as yet without names for it, he was, no, he was noble and noblest. Hero, prophet, god, Wutan, the greatest of all, Thought is thought, however it speak or spell itself. Intrinsically, I conjecture, I conjecture, this Odin must have been of the same sort of stuff as the greatest kind of men, a great thought in the wild deep heart of him. The rough words he articulated are there, not the rudimental roots of those the rough words he articulated, are they not the rude, run, rudimental roots 
of those English words we still use? He worked so in that obscure element, but he was as a light kindled in it, a light of intellect, rude nobleness of the heart, the only kind of lights we have yet. A hero, as I say, and he had to shine there and make his obscure element a little lighter. As is still the task of us all, we will fancy him to be the type Norseman, the finest Teuton whom that race had yet produced. The rude Norse heart burst up into boundless admiration round him, into adoration. Excuse me. He is a root of so many great things. The fruit of him is found growing from deep thousands of years over the whole field of Teutonic life. Our own Wednesday, Wednesday, as I said, is it not still Odin's day? Wednesbury, Waynesboro, Waynestead, Wandsworth. These are places, I guess. Odin grew into England too, in these places. These are still leaves of that root. With the tree metaphor, he was the chief god to all the Teutonic peoples, their pattern Norseman. In such way did they admire their pattern Norseman. That was the fortune he had in the world. Thus, if the man Odin himself had vanished utterly, there is this huge shadow of him which still projects over the whole history of his people. For this Odin, once admitted to be God, we can understand well that the whole Scandinavian scheme of nature, or dim no scheme, whatever it might be, before have been would now begin to develop itself altogether differently and grow thenceforth in a new manner what this odin saw into and thought with his runes and his rhymes the whole teutonic people laid to heart and carried forward quite the guy eh? <laughs> his way of thought became their way his way of thought became their way of thought such under new conditions is the hist history of every great thinker still. In gigantic confused lineaments, like some enormous camera obscura, shadow thrown upwards from the deep, the dead depth deeps of the past, and covering the whole northern heaven, is not that Scandinavian mythology in some sort the portraiture of this man Odin? The, the gigantic image of his natural face, legible or not legible there, expanded and confused in that manner. Ah, thought, I say, is always thought. No great man lives in vain. The history of the world is but the biography of great men. As he said in the first episode, to me there is something very touching in this primeval figure of heroism. In such artless, helpless, but hearty, entire reception of a hero by his fellow men. Never so helpless in shape, it is the noblest of feelings, and a feeling in some shape or other, perennial as man himself. If I could show in any measure what I feel deeply for a long time now, that it is the vital element of manhood, the soul of man's history here in our world, it would be the chief use of this discoursing at present. We do not now call our great men gods, nor admire without limit, ah, no, with, with limit enough. But if we have no great men, or 
do not admire at all, that were a still worse case. This poor Scandinavian hero worship, that whole Norse way of looking at the universe and adjusting oneself there has an indestructible merit for us, a rude childlike way of recognizing the divineness of nature, the divineness of man. Most rude yet heartful, robust, giant-like, betokening what a giant of a man this child would yet grow to. It it was a truth and is none. It is not as the half-dumb, stifled voice of the long-buried generations of our own fathers calling out of the depths of ages to us, in whose veins their blood still runs. This, in quotation marks, this then, this then, this is what we made of the world. This is all the image and notion we could form to ourselves of this great mystery of a life and universe. Despise it not, you are raised high above it to large free scope of vision, but you too are not yet at the top. No, your notion too, so much enlarged, is but a partial, imperfect one. That matter is a thing. That matter is a thing no man will ever, in time or out of time, comprehend. After thousands of years or ever now expansion, Man will find himself but struggling to comprehend again a part of it. The thing is larger. This is the second time he's using the word shall instead of than. It's strange because he says the thing is larger shall man. But this was in the first episode as well. Maybe it's a 19th century thing, but it's definitely we would say than. Anyway, this thing is larger than man not to be compre comprehended by him, an infinite thing. That was all a big quote from somewhere. He didn't give the source. The essence of the Scandinavian, as indeed of all pagan mythologies, we found to be recognition of the divineness of nature, sincere communion of man with the mysterious invisible powers visibly seen at work in the world around him. This, I should say, is more sincerely done in the Scandinavian than in any mythology I know. Sincerity is the great characteristic of it. Superior sincerity, far superior, consoles us for the total want of old Grecian grace. Sincerity, I think, is better than grace. I feel that these old Northmen were looking into nature with open eye and soul, most earnest, honest, childlike, and yet manlike, with a great-hearted simplicity and depth and freshness in a true, loving, admiring, unfearing way, a right, valiant, true, old race of men. Such recognition of nature one finds to be the chief element of paganism, recognition of man and his moral duty, though this too is not wanting, comes to be the chief element only in purer forms of religion. Here, indeed, is a great distinction and epoch in human beliefs, a great landmark in the religious development of mankind. Man first puts himself in relation with nature and her powers, wonders and worships over those. Not till a later epoch does he dis discern that all power is moral, that the grand point is the distinction for him of good and evil, of thou shalt and thou shalt not. Just get a little drink. <clears throat> a 
With regard to all these fabulous delineations in the Edda, I will remark, moreover, as indeed was already hinted, that most probably they must have been of much newer date. Most probably, probably, even from the first, were comparatively idle for the old Norsemen, and, as it were, a kind of poetic sport, allegory and poetic delineation, as I said above, cannot be religious fate. The fate itself must first be, must first be there. Then allegory enough will gather around it, as the fit body round its soul. The North face, the, the Norse fate, I can well suppose, like other fates, was most active while it lay mainly in the silent state, and had not yet much to say about itself, still less to sing. Among those shadowy Edda matters, amid all those, amid all that fantastic uh, congeries of assertions and traditions in their musical mythologies, the main practical belief <clears throat> a man could could have was probably not much more than this: of the Valkyries and the Hall of Odin of an inflexible destiny, and that the one thing needed for a man was to be brave. The Valkyrs, the Valkyries, Valkyrs, are choosers of the slain, a destiny inexorable, like unchangeable, I think, which it is useless trying to bend or soften. He appointed who is to be slain. This was a fundamental point for the Norse believer. As indeed it is for all earnest men everywhere, for a Mohammed, a Luther, for a Napoleon. It lies at the basis, this for every such man. It is the woof out of which the whole system of thought is woven. The Valkyrs, and then that these choosers lead the brave to a heavenly hall of Odin, only the base and slavish being thrust else elsewhither into the realms of Hela, the death goddess. I take this to have been the soul of the whole Norse belief. They understood in their heart that it was indispensable to be brave, that Odin would have no favour for them but despise and thrust them out if they were not brave. Consider, too, whether there is not something in this. It is an everlasting duty, valid in our day, as in that, the duty of being brave, valour is still of value. The first duty for man is still that of subduing fear. We must get rid of fear. We cannot act at all till then. Mm. A man's acts are slavish, not true, but specious. Specious. His very thoughts are false. He thinks too as a slave and coward till he have got fear under his feet. It's just kind of emphasizing the importance of, uh, of yeah, bravery, courage. This was such an important part of the Norse mythology, valor. Mm. You could, when they died, they couldn't even get into the, supposedly couldn't even get into the hall of Odin if they had not been valorous in, in life. 
Odin's creed, if we disentangle the real kernel of it, is true to, to this hour. A man shall and must be valiant. He must march forward and quit himself like a man, trusting imperturbably in, in the appointment and choice of the upper powers, and on the whole not fear at all. Now and always the completeness of his victory over fear will determine how much of a man he is. Cool. It is doubtless very savage, that kind of valour of the old Northmen. Snorro tells us that they thought it a shame and mystery, not a, and a misery not to die in battle. And if natural death seemed to be coming on, they would cut wounds in their flesh that Odin might receive them as warriors slain. Wow. They preferred to go out with a bang than a whimper. Old kings about to die had their body laid into a ship and the ship sent forth with sails set and slow fire burning in it that once out at sea it might blaze up in a flame. Wow. And in such manner bury worthily the old hero at once in the sky and in the ocean. Wild bloody valour yet valour of its kind better i say than none in the old sea kings too what an indomitable indomitable rugged energy silent with closed lips as i fancy them unconscious that they that they were specially brave defying the wild ocean with its monsters and all men and things progenitors of our own Blakes and Nelsons. No Homer sang these Norse sea kings, but Agamemnon's was a small but Agamemnon's was a small audacity, and of small fruit in the world to some of them. To Hralfs of Normandy, for instance, Hralf or Rollo Duke of Normandy, the wild sea king has a share in governing governing England at this hour. Yeah, just, I see the name Rolo, and yeah, Rolo is a character in the series of Vikings, Ragnar and Rolo, I believe were brothers uh, in the mythology, because they were in the series anyway. What a series. <laughs> I, I might start rewatching it sometime, or an episode or two. Um, it's a couple of seasons long. Uh, such brilliant story over the whole, um, over all the, all of the seasons of it anyway um nor was it altogether nothing even that wild sea roving and battling through so many generations it needed to be ascertained which was the strongest kind of men mm. forged in a tough environment um who were to be ruler over whom among the northland sovereigns too i find some who got the title woodcutter forest felling kings much much lies in that i suppose at bottom many of them were forest fellers meaning they cut down trees as well as fighters though the skulls like our kind of poets talk mainly of the latter they talk about kings as fighters not necessarily as tree fellers misleading certain critics not a little for no nation of men could ever live by fighting alone there could not produce they could not produce enough just from that alone. I suppose the right good fighter was oftenest, also the right good forest feller. 
the right good improver, discerner, doer, and worker in every kind. For true valor, different enough from ferocity, is the basis of all. A more legitimate kind of valor, that showering, oops, showing itself against the untamed forest, a more legitimate kind of valor than of fighting, showing itself against the untamed forests and dark brute powers. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know what's going on. Thankfully, it's kind of gone away, but... Uh, um, yeah, it's fine. But I don't know why it's like that. Um, where was I? Yeah, so kind of like this valor in terms of like um, ingenuity and uh, yeah, being creativity uh, to, to improve uh, things for yourself, like maybe, you know, new inventions and stuff, uh, better designs. He's talking about that kind of a valor as well, not just in terms of slaughtering. Um, to conquest nature, to conquer nature. In the same direction, have not we their descendants since carried it forth. <clears throat> May such valor last forever with us. That the man Odin, speaking with a hero's voice and heart, as with an impressiveness out of heaven, told his people the infinite importance of valor. How man thereby became a god, and that his people, feeling a response to it in their own hearts, believed this message of his, and thought it a message out of heaven and him a divinity for telling it to them. This seems to me the primary seed grain of the Norse religion, from which all manner of mythologies, symbolic practices, speculations, allegories, songs and sagas would naturally grow. Grow, and how strangely they would grow, I called it a small light shining and shaping in the huge vortex of Norse darkness. Yet the darkness itself was alive. Consider that. It was the eager, inarticulate, uninstructed mind of the whole Norse people, longing only to become articulate, to go on articulating even farther. The living doctrine grows grows like a banyan tree. The first seed is the essential thing. Any branch strikes itself down into the earth, becomes a new root, and so in endless complexity, we have a whole wood, a whole jungle, one seed, the parent of it all. Was not the whole Norse religion, according in some sense, what we called the enormous shadow of this man's likeness? Critics trace some affinity in only a few pages left now, in some Norse myths uh, of the creation and such like, with those of the Hindus, the cow Adumbla, licking the rhyme from the rocks, has a kind of Hindu uh, look. A Hindu cow supported into frosty, transported into frosty countries. So someone is kind of noticing a similarity between the Hindu mythology and Scandinavian mythology. Probably enough, indeed, we may say undoubtedly, these things will have a kindred with the remotest lands, with the earliest times. Thought does not die, but only is changed. The first man that began to think is the in this planet of ours. He was the beginner of all. And then the second man and the third man, nay, 
Every true thinker to this hour is a kind of Odin, teaches men his way of thought, spreads a shadow of his own likeness over sections of the history of the world. Hmm, nice. Of the distinctive poetic character or merit of this or merit of this Norse mythology, I have not room to speak, nor does it concern us much. Of the, of the distinctive poetic character or merit of this Norse mythology, I have not room to speak, <clears throat> nor does it concern us. Some wild prophecies we have as the Volupsa, or in the Elder Edda, of a rapt, earnest, sibylline sort, um, but they were comparatively an idle adjunct of the matter. Men who are men who, as it were, but toyed with the matter, these later skulls, and it is their songs chiefly that survive. In later centuries, I suppose, they would go on singing, poetically symbolizing, as our modern painters paint, when it was no longer from the innermost heart, or not from the heart at all. This is everywhere to be well kept in mind. Gray's fragments of Norse lore, at any rate, will give one no notion of it, any more than Pope will of Homer. It is no square-built gloomy palace of black ashlar marble, shrouded in awe and horror, as Gray gives it to us, no rough as then north rocks, as the Iceland deserts, it is, uh, with a heartiness, homeliness, even a tint of good humour and robust myth, mirth in the middle of these fearful things. The strong old Norse heart did not go upon theatrical sublimities. They had not time to tremble. I like much their robust simplicity, their veracity, directness of conception. Thor draws down his brows in a veritable Norse rage, grasps his hammer till the knuckles grow white. Beautiful traits of pity too, an honest pity. Balder, the white god, dies the beautiful benignant Ben benignant, benignant, means like benign. Never saw it written like that before. He is the sun god. They try all nature for a remedy, but he is dead. Frigga, his mother, sends Hermoder to seek or see him. Nine days and nine nights he rides through gloomy deep valleys, a labyrinth of gloom. Arrives at the bridge with its gold roof. The keeper says, Yes, yes, Balder did pass here, but the kingdom of the dead is down yonder, far towards the north. Her mother rides on, leaps Hel Hellgate, Hellas Gate, does see Balder and speak with him. Balder cannot be delivered, inexorable. Hella will not, for Odin or any god, give him up. The beautiful and gentle has to remain there. His wife had volunteered to go with him, to die with him. They shall forever remain there. He sends his ring to Odin. Nana, the wife, sends her thimble to Frigga. Ah, remembrance. Ah, me. <laughs> Let me just see. I think I've done an hour now. Is it roughly an hour? My mother told me. One hour and 15 minutes. All right. Yeah, there's only about three, four pages left. Um, For me... 
Valor is the fountain of pity too, of truth and all that is great and good in man. The robust homely vigour of the Norse heart attaches one much in these delineations. Is it not a trait of right honest strength, says Uland, who was written, who has written a fine essay on Thor, that the old Norse heart finds itself friend in the thunder god, that it is not frightened away by his thunder, but finds that summer heat, the beautiful noble summer, must and will have thunder withal. The Norse heart loves this Thor and his hammer bolt sports with him. Thor is summer heat, the god of peaceable industry as well as thunder. He is the peasant's friend. His true henchman and attendant is Thialfi, manual labor. Thor himself engages in all manner of rough manual work, scorns no business for its plebeianism, is ever and anon travelling to the country of the Jotuns, harrying these chaotic frost monsters, subduing them, at least straightening and damaging them. There is no great broad humour in some of these things. There is a great broad humour in some of these things. Thor, as we saw above, goes to Jotunland to seek Himir's cauldron, that the gods may brew beer. Himir, the huge giant, enters. His grey beard, all full of hoar-frost, splits pillars with the very glance of his eye. Thor, after much rough tumult, snatches the pot, claps it on his head. The handles of it reach down to his heels. He said this already. Mm. The Norse skald has a kind of loving sport with Thor. This is the Himir whose cattle, the critics have discovered, are icebergs. Oh, interesting. Huge untutored, huge, huge untutored. This word again, uh, Brob Dig Nag Genius. Brob Dig Nag Genius, a strange word. Needing only to be tamed down into Shakespeare's Dante's Guthas. It is all gone now, that old Norse work. Thor, the thunder god, changed into Jack, the giant killer. But the mind that made it is is still here. How strangely things grow and die and do not die. There are twigs of that great world tree of Norse belief still curiously traceable. In Lord of the Rings, for example. <laughs> this poor Jack of the nursery, with his miraculous shoe of swiftness, coat of darkness, sword of sharpness, he is one. Hind Etten, and still more decisively Red Etten of Ireland, in the Scottish ballads, these are both derived from Norseland. Etten is evidently a Jotun. Nay, Shakespeare's Hamlet is a twig too of this same world tree. There seems no doubt of that. Hamlet, Amleth, I find, is really a, a mythic personage, and his tragedy of the poisoned father poisoned asleep by drops in his ear, and the rest is a Norse myth. Old Saxo, as his wont was, made it a Danish history. Shakespeare, out of Saxo, made it what we see. <clears throat> so he's kind of saying that, uh, yeah, Hamlet, 
who is a character set in Denmark. Um, yeah, is coming from the North mythology. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, Shakespeare got it from this monk called Saxo Grammaticus. I actually have his book. It's uh, the history of the Danish people. Um, that is a twig of the world tree that has grown, I think, by nature or accident, that one has grown. By nature or accident, that one has grown. In fact, these old Norse songs have a truth in them, an inward perennial truth and greatness, as indeed all must have that can very long preserve itself by tradition alone. It is a greatness not of mere body and gigantic bulk, but a rude greatness of soul. There is a sublime, uncomplaining melancholy, traceable in these old hearts, a great free glance into the very deep deeps of thought. They seem to have seen, these brave old Northmen, what meditation has taught all men in all ages, that this world is after all but a show, a phenomenon of appearances, not a real thing. All deep souls see into that. The Hindu uh, mythologist the German philosopher, the Shakespeare, the earnest thinker, wherever he may be. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. That's a quote from uh, Shakespeare's Tempest, I think. Um, One of Thor's expeditions to Utgard, the outer gardens, central seat of Jotunland, is remarkable in this respect. Thialfi was with him and Loki. After various adventures, they entered upon giant land, wandered over plains, wild, uncultivated places among stones and trees. At nightfall, they noticed a house. And as the door, which indeed formed one whole side of the house, was open, they entered. It was a simple habitation, one large hall, altogether empty. They stayed there. Suddenly, in the dead of the night, loud noises alarmed them. Thor grasped grasped his, his hammer, stood in the dark, prepared for fight. His companions with, within ran hither and thither in, in terror, seeking some outlet in that rude hall. It's only three pages left now. Um, they found a little closet at last and took refuge there. Neither had Thor any battle, for lo, in the morning it turned out that the noise had been only the snoring of a certain enormous but peaceable giant. The giant uh, Skrimir, who lay peaceably sleeping nearby. And this, that they took for a house, was merely his glove <laughs> thrown aside there the door was the glove wrist <laughs> the little closet they had fled into was the thumb such a glove I remark too that it had not fingers as ours have but only a thumb and the rest undivided a most ancient rustic glove Scrimier if I'm saying that right, now carried their portmanteau all day. Thor, however, had his own suspicions, did not like the ways of Skrimir, determined at night to put an end to him as he slept. Raising his hammer, he struck down into the giant's face with a right thunder thunderbolt blow of force to rend rocks. The giant merely awoke, rubbed his cheeks and said, 
did a leaf fall? <laughs> again, Thor struck so soon as Skimir again slept. A better blow than before, but the giant only murmured. Was that a grain of sand? Thor's third stroke was with both hands, the knuckles white, I suppose, and seemed to dint the to dint deep into Skrimir's, Skrimir's visage, his face, but he merely checked his snore and remarked, there must be sparrows roosting in this tree, I think. What is, uh, what is that they have dropped? At the gate of Utgard, a place so high that you had to strain your neck bending back to see the top of it, Skrimir went his ways. Thor and his companions were admitted, invited to take share in the games going on. To Thor, for his part, they handed a drinking horn. It was a common feat, they told him, to drink this dry at one draught, long and fiercely. Three times over, Thor drank, but made hardly any, any impression. He was a weak child, they told him. Could he lift the cat he saw there? Small as the feet seemed, Thor, with his whole godlike strength, could not. He bent up the creature's back, but uh, could not raise its feet off the ground. Could at the utmost raise one foot. So there's a real giganticism going on in the Norse mythology. Why you are no man, why you are no man, said the Utgard people. There is an old woman that will wrestle you. Thor, heartily ashamed, seized the haggard old woman, but could not throw her. And now on their quitting Utgard, Wait a second, is it 28? Or... Oh yeah, it's fine. Um, and now, on their quitting Utgard, the chief Jotun, escorting them politely a little way, said to Thor, You are beaten then, yet be not so much ashamed. There was deception of appearance in it. That horn you tried to drink was the sea. You did, you did make it ebb, but who could drink that, the bottomless? The cat you would have lifted? Why, that is the Midgard snake, the great world serpent, which, tail in mouth, girds and keeps up the whole great, the whole created world. Had you torn that up, the world must have ru rushed to ruin. As for the old woman, she was time, old age, duration. With her, what can wrestle? Ha, <laughs> nice couldn't wrestle no man nor no god with hers gods or men she prevails over all and then those three strokes you struck look at these tr three valleys your three strokes made these thor looked at his attendant jotun it was skimir it was say norse critics the old chaotic rocky earth in person and that glove house was the earth cavern, but Skymir or Skrimir had vanished Utgard with its sky high gates when Thor grasped his hammer to smite them had gone to air. Only the giant's voice was heard mocking. Better come to no more Jotunheim. Hmm. So a lot of trickery going on in um Scandinavian mythology. 
This is of the allegoric period, as we see, and half-play, not of the prophetic or entirely and entirely devout. But as a myth, is there not real antique Norse gold in it? It's only a page and a half left now. More true metal, rough from the mimer stithy, mimer stithy, than in many a famed Greek myth shaped far better. A great broad, this word again, brobdignag <laughs> grin of true humour is in this scrimmier. Mirth resting on earnestness and sadness as the rainbow on black tempest. Only a right valiant heart is capable of that. It is the grim humour of our own Ben Johnson. Rare old Ben runs in the blood of us. I fancy for one catches tones of it under a still other shape out of the American backwoods. Mm. He's just kind of saying, yeah, this, this kind of, these kind of myths are kind of like, uh, yeah, baked into um, people who uh, descended from these people. It's baked into the DNA. Um, that is also a very striking conception that of the Ragnarok, consummation or twilight of the gods. It is in the Volupsa song, seemingly a very old prophetic idea. The gods and Jotuns, the divine powers and the chaotic brutes, brute ones, after long conquest and partial victory by the former, meet at last in universal world-embracing wrestle and duel, world serpent against Thor, strength against strength, mutually extinctive, and ruin, twilight sinking into darkness, swallows the created universe. The old universe with its gods is sunk. But it is not final death. There is to be a new heaven and a new earth, a higher supreme god, and justice to reign among men. Well, I mean... It's interesting that in their own mythology, there was this Ragnarok, which is going to be when, yeah, the two gods like destroy destroy each other, like the Jotuns and the gods destroy each other. Um, but then I think they believed something else was going to come after that. Mm. In a way, it's kind of prophetic of, I mean, that sentence there, where is it? Um, there is to be a new heaven and a new earth, a higher supreme god and justice to reign among men. Well, you could say that's prophetic of Christianity, which came. Curious, this law of mutation, which also is a law written in man's innermost thought, had been deciphered by these old earnest thinkers in their rude style. And how, though all dies and even gods die, yet all death is but a phoenix fire death, and new birth into the greater and the better. It is the fundamental law of being for a creature made of time. Living in this place of hope, all earnest men have seen into it, may still see into it. And now, connected with this, let us glance at the last myth of the appearance of Thor at, and end there. I fancy it to be the latest in date of all these fables, a sorrowing protest against the advance of Christianity. Set forth reproachfully, by some conservative pagan. King Olaf has been harshly blamed for his overzeal in introducing Christianity. Surely I should have blamed him far more for an underzeal in that. 
he paid dear enough for it. He died by the revolt of his pagan people in battle in the year 1033 at Stickelstad near that Drontheim, Drontheim uh, where the chief cathedral of the north has now stood for many centuries. Dedicated gratefully to his memory as Saint Olaf, the myth about Thor is to this effect. King Olaf, the Christian reform king, is sailing with fit escort along the shore of Norway from haven, from haven to haven, like port to port, dispensing justice or doing other royal work. On leaving a certain haven, it is found that a stranger of grave eyes and aspect, red beard of stately robust figure, has stepped in. The courtiers address him, his answers surprised by their pertinency and depth. At length, he is brought to the king. So, some very remarkable stranger is um, coming into contact with the king's um, entourage. The stranger's conversation here is not less remarkable. As they sail along the beautiful shore, but after some time, he addresses King Olaf like this. Yes, King Olaf, it is all beautiful, with the sun shining on it there, green, fruitful, a right fair home for you, and many a sore day had Thor, many a wild fight with the rock Jotuns before he could make it so. As we discovered in the previous pages. And now you seem minded to put away Thor, King Olaf. Have a care. Hmm, have a care. Said the stranger, drawing down his brows like Odin. Was it Odin? And when they looked again, he was nowhere to be found. This is the last appearance of Thor on the stage of this world. Lamenting the arrival of Christianity. Do we not see well enough how the fable might arise without unveracity on the part of anyone it is the most it is the way most gods have come to appear among men thus if in pindar's time neptune was seen once at the nemean games what was this neptune to but a stranger of noble, noble grave aspect fit to be seen there is something pathetic, tragic for me in this last voice of paganism. Thor is vanished. The whole Norse world has vanished and will not return ever again. In like fashion to that, pass away the highest things. All things that have been in this world, all things, I'll just say that again, in like fashion, just like the way Scandinavian mythology left, made way for Christianity, pass away the all kind of highest things all things that have been in this world all things that are or will be in it have to vanish we have our sad farewell to give them that norse religion a rude but earnest sternly impressive consecration of valor so we may define it sufficed for these old valiant northmen Consecration of valor is not a bad thing. We will take it for good, so far as it goes. 
Neither is there no use in knowing something about this old paganism of our fathers. Unconsciously and combined with higher things, it is in us still, that old faith withal, that word again, withal. To know it consciously brings us cl into closer and clearer relation with the past, with our own possessions in the past. For the whole past, as I keep repeating, is the possession of the present. The past had always something true and is a precious possession. In a different time, in a different place, it is always some other side of our common human nature that has been developing itself. Mm, nice. Yeah, the actual true is the sum of all these. Not any one of them by itself constitutes what a human nature is hitherto developed. Better to know them all than misknow them. To which, this is a quote, to which of these three religions do you specifically adhere, inquires my master of his teacher. To all the three answers the other. To all the three, for they, by their union, first constitute the true religion. So in the end there, he's just kind of uh, said that it's very worthwhile to look at history because it um, it will be explaining some aspect. If it's of your own country, of your own people or something, it's going to be explaining some part of you, actually. Um, and if it's going to be, if it's not of your particular people, it's going to be still, um, if it's from some other country, you're going to see how that has led to how that country is right now. Um, that is it. That is that lecture. Um, let me see. It's probably an hour and 30 minutes. Is it probably just like the other one? What have we got here? 37, exactly. The other one was 37 minutes long as well, I think. If I end it in the next 30 seconds, then it's the same. <laughs> um, so that's it. Um, I didn't do so much commentary in that one. I think it was all fairly self-explanatory. Um, but yeah, glad I reread that. Um, yeah, like first time around when I read it, it was all so, I mean, I got so many new things from it, like Saxo Grammaticus, for example. I even went off and bought his book. So many new references when I heard that first. Um, if I hadn't read this, I'd probably be like, whoa, look at all these references. I'm going to, i got to look these all up. But I have read all this before, so I have um, done all that. I uh, bought those books. And um, yeah, so if this was your first time, maybe you had a similar experience um to the one that i had when i read this first so anyway um who knows maybe i'll do another lecture from this book also um but yeah that was it i'm gonna leave it at that now once again if you got this far cool i uh, hope you enjoyed it um and yeah like uh comment and share on uh instagram that would be really great um and if you want to support on patreon even just you know one time um you you know i don't know buy a coffee one time and then cancel it after the you know after one month or whatever or you can you know leave a go for however long you like <laughs> but um 
yeah, so um, Oral Otium on Instagram and Patreon. And um, yeah, until the next episode. Take care.